let's uh, bow and have we a We have been invited into Oh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> invited into rest. Real rest. A rest that reaches down deep into our souls. It is a rest that brings stability and peace in the midst of the daily grind. It is a rest that is found not only in a person, but also in a place, what I will call a sacred space. We are being invited to daily connect with Christ in this sacred space. And over the next six weeks, we are going to learn how to create this space in our daily lives. Come, all who are weary, all who are burdened, and he will give us rest. That introduces our next sermon series. But before we get there, I'd ask we open our Bibles to the book of Acts. Everybody say word. We are in Acts chapter 28. I cannot believe that we have actually made it. I mean, we have plowed through 28 chapters of the book of Acts. In fact, I did some research. I dug back into our archives. This officially marks the 50th message out of the book of Acts that we have, we have uh, gone through as a church. Uh, and I believe, really, truthfully, the best has been saved for last. And so with that, we are picking back up where we were last week. Paul and other prisoners have gone from Caesarea, uh, outside of Jerusalem, in the city or area of Judea, all the way to Rome, under the watchful eye of Julius, the Roman soldier of the Augustan cohort. And as we've seen, in fact, we're going to look at a map. No Sunday is complete without a map, I, I want to share. Uh, in fact, I have my laser pointer. Are you guys excited? Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so they started the journey in Jerusalem. As you remember, Paul had to leave under the cover of night because of the clandestine plan to have Paul ambushed. Uh, and so Paul was taken to Antipatris, all the way to Caesarea. That is where he boldly proclaimed the gospel for, before uh, King Agrippa and Festus and Felix. And after two years there, he was put aboard a ship under the, the governance of Julius, under the guard of the Augustan cohort, and they were taken by ship north. As you all remember, they were under great duress. They were going late into the year, into the early fall, and they were facing quite a bit of adverse wind. In fact, at Myra, they changed ships from a meeting medium-sized sailing vessel to an Alexandrian trade ship that was making its way to Rome. And they sailed, again, under great duress, came to the island of Crete, under the lee of Crete, trying to avoid some of the adverse winds, and they docked at Fair Havens. That is where they made the decision, the fateful decision, to continue to sail on. They attempted to sail around the Horn of Crete to port in the, the port of Phoenix up here on the island of Crete. Unfortunately, they were grabbed by the wind and carried 600 miles off course, but sovereignly, basically shipwrecked on the island of Malta where the gospel was shared. And today, still to this day, the gospel is proclaimed on the island of Malta because Paul was shipwrecked there. Last week, they sailed from Malta to the tip of Sicily on into the tip of Italy, and they made their way to Puteoli, uh, where we will pick up our discussion this morning. They spent seven days in the city of Puteoli being encouraged by believers in that port city of the port of Naples. And then they made the 125-mile walk from the city of Puteoli all the way to Rome. In fact, they walked along what is called the Apian Highway. You can take a trip there today. You can, you can go to Italy, and, and I know some of you are like, I wonder what we should get Pastor Chris and his wife for, oh, I don't know, a vacation. Look, if it's Italy, it's Italy, right? Not Italy, Texas. I'm talking Italy, you know what I'm saying? 
Be as subtle as I possibly can. No, anyway. Uh, so you can walk this highway, actually, 125 miles, this ancient Roman road that stretches all the way through Italy. And so Paul, as they began this walk, began to encounter Christians who heard of his arrival in the city of Rome, and they came out to encourage him. I want to I stress, do not underestimate the impact that you have in other believers' lives when you set out to encourage them, especially when they're going through seasons of trial. Or they're facing some type of hardship. It will instill a sense of thankfulness in the heart of those you encourage. And it will give them courage. To encourage someone is to infuse them with courage as we will see at the end of verse 13. It says, we came to Puteoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. Great hospitality evidenced in the early church. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Apius and Three Taverns to meet us. And so they left the city of Rome, and as they traveled the Apian Highway, they came to two little locations that were, that were stops along the way on seeing them. On seeing these brothers who would come out to encourage, Paul thanked God, and he took courage. It is hard for us to wrap our mind around the immensity of entering into Rome in the first century. He is about to stand before the emperor of Rome. There was no higher seat of authority and humanity at the time. Paul thanked God. He took courage. He was going to need it. And when he came to Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. And so Paul was given in this first trip to Rome a certain level of autonomy. He was able, able to rent his own apartment, though still under Roman guard. In fact, throughout the day, he would be chained to this Roman guard, but it allowed him to receive visitors. In fact, he set out to meet with a group of people in the city of Rome. And so based upon our study thus far of the book of Acts and seeing the model when, when Paul and others came into a particular city, what people group do you think Paul first reached out to in Rome? The Jews. How many of y'all say the Jews? How many of y'all say Gentiles? Okay, I'm going to say both. But he first targeted, he first sought out audience with the Jewish leadership. The gospel first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And so after three days of being in Rome, Paul invited all of the local Jewish leadership that were over the local synagogues to come and to visit with Paul. We see this in verse 17. It says, after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, brothers. So he's about to explain to them, one, while he, why he's in the city of Rome. And oh yeah, why he's chained. He has some explaining to do. Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. As you all remember, Paul, in fact, was rescued by the Roman uh, cohort as he was being beaten almost to death by the Jewish leaders and mob in Jerusalem. Paul was handed over to the Romans, and he was tried, multiple trials. In fact, verse 18, he says, when they examined me, that is, he was under Roman, uh, Roman examination in the court. They wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. The Jews were seeking the death penalty in Paul's case, but the Romans found no reason to put him to death. In fact, he continues on, but because of the objection of the Jews, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, something Paul had the right to do, though I had, they had no charge to bring against my nation, or I had no charge to bring against my nation. Paul is assuring his audience, look, I'm not here to cause trouble for Israel. In fact, I am in the city of Rome because the people of Israel have rejected my testimony. Verse 20, for this reason, 
For this reason that I am here, I, I have asked to see you and speak with you since it is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. Family, what is, or what is, what is Paul referring to when he says the hope of Israel? What was the hope of Israel? What is the hope of Israel? The Messiah, what else? What else? What was their hope? They're under Roman occupation. They're in bondage. Freedom. They were anticipating the military might of Messiah to come and usher in the kingdom of God on earth. And Paul's like, hey, by the way, Messiah has come. You've overlooked a very, very important component of the multifaceted work of Messiah. He first came to be Savior. He will return to be King. And so Paul asks to have an opportunity to share with them their message, and it seems that they are relatively open to the idea of him sharing that message. Verse 21, they said to him, We've received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. I find that hard to believe, that these, these particular Jewish leaders had not heard of Paul. I believe they had heard of Paul. And so I don't know why they're, they're kind of playing dumb, but maybe they just want to hear it fresh from his ears. Verse 22, we desire to hear from you what your views are. I find that a fascinating statement. There are times where people want to hear what your views are. And we look at those as opportunities to share the message of the gospel. But keep in mind, typically, people have already a preconceived idea of what you believe. In fact, we hear, it says, for with regard to this sect, what is that referring to? Christianity. According to this sect, this faith in Christ, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. And so they're like, we want to hear your viewpoint. We're interested to hear your perspective. Just want you to understand and keep in mind that we've already heard that we're supposed to reject it. And so I, I've seen this on, on people's faces and in, in conversations as I begin to have a conversation and I, I start to share it and the conversation starts to move towards Jesus and the person goes, uh, we're going to have one of those old Jesus conversations, right? And I sit there and I'm like, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure what you hold, like what, what previous content you've been exposed to. I, I have these wonderful conversations with those who have been illuminated by YouTube uh, and other mm, content found on Google searches. And, oh, I took a first-year college religions course, and now I know everything about all faith systems. And I'm like, awesome. Let's start to unpack that. Because everywhere it is spoken against, culturally Christianity is seen as a faulty worldview. And so Paul is already kind of facing a prejudiced crowd. So regardless of the motivation, they set up an appointment, and then Paul does his best to convince his hearers. Look at verse 23. It says, when they had appointed a day for him. Who appointed the day? The religious leaders. I find it fascinating. They're driving it. They appoint a day for him. They came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. And so he has a great crowd that, that comes to his apartment from morning until evening. We have seen multiple times Paul is not short-winded in his preaching. In fact, he is the only recorded preacher in the Bible to have actually preached somebody to death. We all remember the story of Onesimus falling from the third war, uh, story window and Paul kept preaching all the more. Well, he expounds to them for the best part of an entire day from morning till night testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And so, family, what was the content that Paul was teaching from? What was he using? The Old Testament. 
the same Old Testament that we have. And so Paul is going through the law of Moses, and he's showing that Moses prophesied that there was going to be a prophet who was to come for the people of Israel. He's showing from the prophets that there was going to be this one born of a virgin, this one who was going to be punished for our sins, crushed for our iniquities, this one who would not let death assail him, know that it would not be his bondage. He would be set free from it, liberated, resurrected, and he would return. And so Paul spent the best part of an entire day trying to convince his hearers that Jesus is not only the Messiah, but he is the Lord and he is the Savior. I, I, I make no, uh, I have no hidden agenda. Here it is. I attempt to convince you every single week. I set out to convince you that Jesus is going to return to establish his kingdom and to convince you to the person and nature of Christ that you would place your faith for the salvation of your soul in Jesus Christ. Some would say you're trying to proselytize. Absolutely. I am trying to proselytize the world, to reach the world with the message of salvation because I believe there is life in no other name than in the name of Jesus Christ. There is a name that is given that all men and women might be saved. What name is that? Jesus. Amen. Well, this message would have sounded very, uh, very foreign to his hearers. In fact, they had, they had designed a Messiah that would come and set them free from Rome. A suffering Messiah seemed incompatible or inconsistent with their view of God. And sometimes, family, sometimes people have a view of God where they can only see him a certain way. And no matter how much evidence you present, they are not going to be swayed away from their view of God. In fact, it's strange as people tell me their view of God and their perspective I'm like, what do you base that on? What is the foundation of that concept? Like people tell me, oh, I, I believe in the guy upstairs. I'm like, what guy? And what stairs? What are you talking about? Oh, you know, the big guy. The big gun. And I realize that most people have this, this concept of God, but there's no actual content. There's no foundation. And so they're seeing God the particular way they wanted to see him, regardless of the evidence that Paul presented. In verse 24, some were convinced. And we see this response, that some are convinced while others continue to disbelieve. And there was a conflict that began to break out in Paul's little apartment, this Roman apartment that he was given, under this, uh, this particular guard. And so this, this argument breaks out, and Paul says, you know what, I've had enough. Look at verse 25. It says, in disagreeing among themselves, that is conflict among themselves, they departed after Paul made this one statement. Paul gets downright biblical with them. He goes, you know what? You know who you guys are like? You're just like your fathers. Isn't that always an encouraging statement? You're just like your father. That's never really used in a positive light ever, is it really? I mean, have you ever had somebody come up to you, hey, you're just like your mother? That's never like, you're so sweet and kind. That's what I mean. You're just like your mother. Or you're just like your father. Well, Paul's about to say, look, you're just like your rejecting fathers. Just like the prophet Isaiah was, was delivering a message, you rejected it, you rejected him as a prophet, you rejected him as a messenger from God. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people. Go to this people, Israel, and say, you will indeed hear, but you'll never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. A hard heart leads to spiritual blindness. A hard heart leads to spiritual deafness. For this people's heart has grown 
grown dull. With their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Spiritual hard-heartedness, the sclerosis of the heart, leads to refusal to be healed. And Paul sees in his ministry this close, intimate uh, similarity with, with Isaiah the prophet. Both Isaiah and Paul were called to be prophets. They both had a message that would ultimately be rejected by their people. And as messengers, they would be rejected. Both Paul and Isaiah had radical conversion stories. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah came into the throne room of God and he declared, I am a man of unclean lips of a people of unclean lips, and I have beheld the Lord of glory. Paul was radically, had a radical encounter with God on the Damascus Road in Acts 9. There's a lot of similarities between these two prophets, and in this way, they shared communion. (laughs) They had similar impact on their listeners. I quote here from the Bible Knowledge Commentary. Obstinate refusal to believe results in calloused hearts, deafened ears, and spiritually blinded eyes. This had happened to both Israel and Isaiah's day and in Paul's. A hard heart leads to blindness of the eyes and of the ears. There are times where people walk around like this going, Okay, go ahead, tell me what you believe. Are you done yet? An unwillingness to listen, to see to be saved. And so Paul announces the great clarion of faith to the world. The door has been opened through Israel's rejection. It was always a part of God's plan that the people of Israel reject so that the people called the Gentiles could receive. Verse 28 is this this great statement. Therefore, Paul said to the group, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. And family, 2,000 years later, you testify that we listened. Here we are 2,000 years later professing faith in Christ. The door has swung wide and we as the Gentiles, in fact, the majority of us are Gentiles. There's some of our family in here who are Jewish believers. They're like completed Jews. We're uber jealous. It's incredible because we as Gentiles have been grafted into the faith. We worship Israel's Messiah. Jesus is our Savior. He is the Savior of Israel, the Savior of the Gentiles, but He is Israel's Messiah. And through their rejection came our salvation. I don't often think about how thankful, I mean, I don't think about, I think about a lot of things, but this reality of how thankful we should be as a people just for the opportunity to be saved. That through the rejection of His people, the door has swung wide for us to enter And in fact, by the time we get to verse 28, we see a fulfillment of what had been prophesied in Acts 1, verse 8. When Jesus spoke to his disciples right before he ascended, he said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and then to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And here we are in chapter 28 of Acts, and we've seen this fulfilled. And we're living fulfillment because here we are in Rowlett, Texas. We are recipients of the Holy Spirit, and we are the ones who are witnesses to Jesus in this generation. It is incredible. And so here we are seeing the fulfillment. And so verse 28, 
leads to what verse? What usually comes after verse 28? Verse 30. How many of you all find it strange that verse 29 is not in some of our versions? Do you all notice that? We've seen this a couple of times through our study of the book of Acts. There are certain technical issues. In fact, we see verse 29 and then verse, or verse 28 and 29 is often omitted. And the question comes to our minds, why is it omitted? Some have offered that it is a later textual edition. Here from the Bible Knowledge Commentary, we quote, Some Greek manuscripts add, After he said this, the Jews left arguing vigorously among themselves. Now, whether that is original or whether it is not, I believe that is exactly what happened. That there was a vigorous argument that broke out. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says this, probably this verse should not be included in the text, though this undoubtedly was their response. So they leave, there's conflict, and then we get to the last two verses of the book of Acts, and it ends. And it has left readers and students of the Bible like scratching their heads for centuries. It's a weird ending. It just kind of like abruptly ends. You go through 28 chapters and all of a sudden it's like, huh, they proclaim the kingdom of God and the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The end. And we're wondering, what happened? And so let's unpack that just a little bit. Verse 30, he lived there two whole years. Who is he? So Paul, he crashed in Rome for a couple of years at his own expense, and he welcomed all who came to him. Family, that is a great testimony of Paul, but that is a great testimony of the church. We are to welcome who? All. Anybody who wants to come in these doors, any person that wants to attend or be a part of the community, we welcome you. Come in, and when you come, just understand that when you're here, we are about proclaiming the kingdom of God on planet Earth, that Jesus is going to return to establish his kingdom. That's all we're waiting for. We're waiting for the trumpet. You all hear that? Oh, it's just the AC. But it could be. We're waiting for the, the call from heaven, the trumpet call, where he calls roll. In this time, what we call the church age, as God, as the gospel is proclaimed, God is, is filling out the role of, of the kingdom of God. But there is a day when that roll call is done. And that door shuts. The church is called home. And there is judgment. And then there is this kingdom of God that is ushered in on planet earth. And Paul proclaimed that, and he continued to proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, often we read over these things and we think, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's a big name. Is that his first, middle, and last name? It's not so much about the name. These are titles. Family, Paul proclaimed with boldness and without hindrance the Lord, that is, Kyrios. He is the master. Jesus is the one in authority. All things have been given into his hands. He is the Pantocrator. He is the Almighty. He sustains the universe by the power of his very word. He is the Lord. He is Master. He is also Jesus. That is, God is Savior. Jesus is the Savior. He died on the cross for our sins. He is risen. He is the Savior, and he is the Christ. That is, he is the Messiah of Israel. And so Paul proclaimed that for two years, and then the book of Acts ends. And it leaves many of us wondering, like, why does it end this way? Why does it seem to come to this strange conclusion? Well, I have a couple of reasons for you. One, I believe it ends this way because it's, a, it's designed to be a baton pass. See, they continued faithfully and with boldness to proclaim 
the kingdom of God, and the Lord Jesus Christ. They were faithful all the way to the end. Now it's the next generation's turn. And it's just like the four by 100 where you see and these, these runners are running, they're running, they're running. They get done with their leg of the race. They hand the baton off. The next runner grabs the baton and continues running. Guess what our job is to do? Well, what is our job? To take the baton. The generation that has come before us, they hand off the baton, and we reach back, we drop it, and we keep going about our own thing. That actually happens. There are generations of Christians who stop carrying the baton. And it becomes a post-Christian, and then a non-Christian nation. And we sit around and go, well, what happened? Whose fault is it? Ours. And don't start telling me, oh, we're such a small pocket of believers. There's no way that God could reach the world through a group of people our size, and we're such a small group. Have you, I'm like, have you ever heard of the Moravians? God took a tiny group of radical, sold-out believers who literally had a prayer meeting that met for 100 years, every single day for 100 years. Can you imagine being that guy who, after 100 years, forgot to show up? I often think about that guy. Where did it end? But they sent more missionaries and to missions, statistically, than any other denomination or group in history. Something like 85% of their role went into missions. In fact, it was uh, Wesley who was met, he met some of the Moravians he came to faith. Anyway, John Wesley made this statement, give me 100 people who fear nothing but sin itself and will rock the world. I count more than 100 in here. You don't think you can take up a baton and radically change this world? You have no concept of the paradox of the kingdom of God. God takes little things and makes them great. God can and will do powerful things through those who are willing to take the baton and run. And I believe that's why Acts ends the way it does. Are you ready to take the baton? But it also leads us asking the question, what happened to Paul? Did he stand before Nero? Was he judged? And so what we do is we look now back to Roman history and and the testimony of the early church to find out what happened to Paul. Most likely, Paul was imprisoned at Rome from the year 60 to 62 A.D. In fact, many writers believe that Paul was then released. He stood trial. He was acquitted under Emperor Nero. He proclaimed. In fact, later he writes that he stood trial by himself. Nobody came to his defense. But he proclaimed the gospel to the highest court in the Roman world before Nero. Many believe that he was then acquitted and he went back to work for a few more years. He continued to reach. He visited churches that he had planted. Some even argue he made it as far as Spain to proclaim the gospel. But something happened in the city of Rome that radically changed the trajectory of the church. Many of us may not know that this, but Nero, Emperor Nero, was a bit of a lunatic. In fact, in the year 64, many believe uh, that Nero ordered his city, the city of Rome, to be lit on fire. Tactius, a Roman historian, writes that Nero played the harp and sang a melodious ode as his city burned, as this particular artist suggests. In fact, this, this particular fire raged out of control. It was lit on July 19th, 64 AD, and it raged for weeks till two-thirds of the entire city of Rome was laid in ruins. His hope was to rebuild the city and then the then contemporary Greek style, which he actually got to do. But through that fire and the subsequent rebuilding, there were many accusations and conspiracies that began to swirl. To turn the attention away from himself, Nero quickly blamed this new religious sect called the Christians, ushering in a brief but brutal season of open persecution and martyrdom in Rome and beyond. 
History tells us that Christians were used to warm up crowds at gladiator events. There were Christians that were sown inside of carcasses of animals and devoured by wild beasts. Their blood was shed unarmed. We have an artist's portrayal of Christians who were praying before they were devoured. They were subject to mob violence. Many were crucified. All of the apostles, except for John the Apostle, succumbed to a martyr's death. Many fell victim to mob violence prior to this and then after. For a time, it was open season on Christians in Rome. In fact, it has been recorded that Nero himself, Emperor Nero, loved to throw lavish parties in his gardens. And to illuminate those parties, he would take Christians, attach them, affix them to poles, coat them in pitch, and light them on fire. Uh, one great artist, uh, Henrik Simaransky, in 1876, painted this called Roman torches, Nero's torches, uh, or more poignantly, Christian candles. Many believe it is during this time Paul was rearrested and brought back to Rome, this time no longer under house arrest. He, in fact, was being held in the, the dark and cold inner chamber of a Roman prison. He was cold. He was alone, ready for his end to come. It was during this time that he wrote his final words to a young protege by the name of Timothy. Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, Paul writes, Timothy, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight, Timothy. I, I finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Stay faithful. Do your best to come to me soon. I'm abandoned. Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke is alone with me. The writer is now in prison too. Get Mark. You remember back in Acts 15, Mark and Paul and Barnabas had a bit of a fracture. Now Mark is valuable. Get him. Bring him with you. He's very useful for me in ministry. Tychius, I've sent to Ephesus. When you come, please bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. Also the books and above all the parchments. Please bring my scriptures. At my first defense, no one came and stood by me. They all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord, he stood by me. He strengthened me so that through me the message might be proclaimed to the Gentiles. I was rescued from the lion's mouth. But I don't think I'll be rescued this time. Not in this life. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. I'm about to be beheaded, Timothy. But to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Do your best to come before winter. I'm cold. The chill of winter is now fast approaching. It's time for me to depart. It's not long after these words were penned, 
Paul was presented before Nero, found guilty, sentenced to death, and beheaded. He was truly poured out as a drink offering. Many believe that Paul's body was then taken and buried in the catacombs below the city of Rome. And with that, we conclude our study of the book of Acts. But before we go, and I hope this is not just a time of us to be biblically educated or we, we get some, uh, some things that tickle our fancy historically, I, I hope this is something we truly apply so we do have some applications to take home. First, take up the baton. If we get anything from our study over the past 50 messages from the book of Acts, let it be this. It is our responsibility as a community and as individual Christians to take up the baton and to run. We are to share the message of Jesus with the world. And, and so essentially the baton is, is out. It's, the runner is stretching out to hand it to us. And the question is, will we take it? Will we run the race that is set before us? I encourage us as individual believers and as a church, let us leverage everything for the work. Let us leverage it all. Let us go for broke. Let us leverage our time, our talents, our treasure to undertake this incredible work that we have been given to do in this generation. Don't grow weary in doing good. For in a due season, we will reap if we do not lose heart. And there are times where we look around and we go, eh, it's been a couple of thousand years. I mean, there's no likelihood he's going to come back at this moment. That is exactly what the fool thought. Those who discontinue to trim their wicks, those who discontinue to be prepared for his arrival, could be this very moment. Leverage it all. Secondly, staying the course... It's so easy to run for a short period of time, to have like a spiritual awakening, a burst of spiritual sprinting, and then we're like, oh, I'm kind of bored with this and move on. I encourage you from the words of, of uh, Paul, Christ through him, the spiritual life, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. It is a plod. Plod carefully. Consider your steps. I believe the spiritual life is a bunch of little yeses. We often think that God's going to ask us to do something huge. We're always terrified of that. We're always terrified of the thought he's going to come up to us and go, hey, sell off all you own, give it to the poor, come follow me. That may terrify you, but it's because we have no concept of what eternally awaits us. This earth's treasure, 1.6 billion, I don't know who won it in South Carolina, but I will tell you, I would trade that 1.6 for what is waiting for me in heaven every day of the week. There is nothing that compares. And my prayer is that every single one of us on our deathbed can look at the next generation and say these words, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. There is laid up for me a crown of righteousness that I am going to take and lay right back at the feet of Jesus. Now it's your turn. Be generationally minded as you plot it out. Carry that baton and prepare to hand it off to the next. And then finally with this, the door is open. We often don't realize how blessed we are as Gentiles. The rejection of Israel, it plagued the heart of Paul. It broke his heart. Romans 9, 10, and 11 tells us so. But through their rejection came this door for the Gentiles, and it is wide open, and it, we're invited. And I, I don't know all of us who are here, and 
Maybe some of you would say, yeah, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian. But my question is, have you walked through the door of salvation? Have you truly received Jesus as your Savior? Because the door is wide open. Come. Come right now. Come. Come through the doorway. Be saved. Trust in Christ. Because there is a day where that door shuts. There's a point where God says it's time. The day and the season that has been set and appointed by the Father, that day comes and the door shuts. It doesn't open again. Please do not fool yourself into thinking that there are other opportunities. There are many who hope that somehow Maybe when somebody dies, they get a second chance. Family, it is once in this life. The door is open, and you have been invited. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you have invited us into your presence. Father, you have given us of your Son. And for this short season of time before you return, we pray that as a people and as individuals we will be found about your business. To you today who have honest with yourself and with God and with others that you have not walked through the door of salvation. You have not received Christ as your Savior. I invite you, friend. You may think that this message is full of flaws. The gospel, the death of Christ, the resurrection, it's a crutch. And it probably has more to do with the dullness of your own heart. Your hearing is hindered, your sight is flawed. I invite you into salvation. Today you want to receive Jesus as your Savior in the quietness of your heart. Tell him, I believe. I believe that you died for me, Jesus, that you were buried and you have risen. The Bible declares it. Please, Jesus, save my life. If that is truly your heart's prayer, the Bible declares you've passed from death to life, from blindness to sight. You are forever a son or daughter of God. And the privileges and the rights that you now have as a, a king's kid, mind-boggling, Welcome to the family. And to you who walk out of here still in doubt, still in question, please hear that you are loved. The door is open. The offer has been made. We love you, Jesus, for first loving us. May we be found faithful in this generation. In your name we pray. Amen. All right.